Hello everyone, this is Grishma Reddy, research intern at Jindal Center of Global South, gladly welcoming all of you to the first episode of our podcast series on the humanitarian crisis and COVID-19 impact in the Global South. Today, with us, we have Professor Raghav and two research interns to speak about the humanitarian crisis in Asia and Africa. Dr. Raghav Sharma is the Associate Professor at Jindal School of International Affairs. Prior to this, he has taught in conflict studies and management program and the good governance Afghanistan program at the Willibrand University of Public Policy University, University of Frankfurt. He has also been associated with the Institute of Chinese Studies, Delhi, in the capacity as a visiting associate fellow, where he led two research projects on Indian membership of the Shanghai Cooperation Organization and examining the Indian and Chinese roles in Central Asia. Both projects were commissioned by the Indian Ministry of External Affairs. As research officer at the Institute of Peace and Conflict Studies, he published extensively on issues of strategic importance for Afghanistan and Central Asia. He has also been associated with the development center sector, having worked and traveled extensively across Afghanistan in his capacity as an international humanitarian aid worker and having undertaken consultancies for the Aga Khan Foundation and Community Work Service in Kabul. He holds a doctoral degree in political science with a specialization in conflict studies from the Willy Brandt School of Public Policy, University of Frankfurt, an undergrad degree in history from St. Stephen's University uh, College, University of Delhi, and international relations and European studies from the Central European University, Budapest. We are extremely delighted to have you with us today, Professor. Along with Professor Raghav, we also have two research interns from Jindal Center of Global South, Aryan Gupta and Akhilesh Balaji. Before I hand over the mic to our speakers, let me provide a brief overview about the Global South and the persistent humanitarian crisis faced by the nation, nations in this region. The face Global South refers broadly to the regions of Latin America, Africa, Asia, and Oce Oceania. It is one of the family of terms, including third world and periphery that denote regions outside Europe, North America, mostly, although not all, low income and often politically or culturally marginalized nations. The use of the phrase global south makes a shift from the central focus on development or cultural differences towards an emphasis on geopolitical relations of power. The nations of the global south face challenges on multiple fronts in the form of worsening climate crisis, political instability, effects of COVID-19 pandemic and humanitarian crisis. In today's episode, we will mainly be focusing on the unfortunate humanitarian crisis which have occurred in Asia and Africa. The case of Afghanistan will be taken up by Professor Raghav, while the other speakers will elaborate on crisis occurring in Yemen and Ethiopia. Humanitarian crisis in simple terms refers to a generalized emergency that has occurred and has affected an entire community or a group of people in a region, which may include high levels of mortality, malnutrition, and spread of diseases and health emergencies. The profound effects of the crisis can range from lack of clean water, food, food scarcity, and loss of life and habitat. Nations already in the clutches of armed conflicts, coups, ethnic and religious persecutions and more gravely affected by the humanitarian crisis. Let's begin the episode with the situation in Afghanistan. Post the Taliban takeover of Afghanistan in August 2021, the country is diving deep into, into crisis with millions of lives at stake. Afghanistan's economy, which heavily relies on international aid, is now crippling as donor countries have halted the funding and have frozen the central bank assets. Afghanistan could see universal poverty by mid-2022, with 97% of, uh, of Afghans impoverished, according to the United Nations. The healthcare center has collapsed, which has deprived millions of basic care. Further, the nation is experiencing unprecedented hunger crisis in the wake of drought and economic collapse. Now, I would like Professor Raghav to take over and provide us with some more insights into the Afghanistan crisis. Uh, Professor, you can please take over. 
Thank you, Krishma. Um, so what um, we are really seeing in Afghanistan is that the country is arguably staring at a very grave, uh, you know, humanitarian crisis, so to speak. A crisis which is largely man-made following, you know, the Taliban's seizure of power on the 15th of August, 2021. And the crisis essentially is playing out at multiple levels. Um, the, there is a political crisis to begin with, and that political crisis essentially stems from the fact that, you know, uh, the Taliban have constituted a so-called government, which is um, anything but inclusive. And by inclusive, I don't mean uh, a government that merely has symbolic representation of people from different ethnicities, because Afghanistan is arguably a very heterogeneous society. But it's a government that is, um, you know, exclusive, not, not just in terms of ethnic representation, but um, it is um, exclusive of people representing different ideologies. It is uh, not inclusive of women who are 50% of the population in Afghanistan. And um, the government doesn't represent the realities of a changed Afghanistan. Um, you know, and this is most visible in the way the Taliban um, you know, were received after they seized power. The Taliban have had a very, um, they've had, they've had a very tough time coming to terms with how to deal with um, nonviolent mobilization and protests uh, against their policies in Afghanistan, particularly by women. And that's been one of the gravest challenges that they faced. Um, the country is also facing a cultural crisis because what the Taliban have been doing is that they've been dismantling Afghan cultural and national identity uh, by essentially erasing, um, erasing, you know, figures of Afghan cultural history and eminence from the public space. Um, they've done away with the national flag. Uh, they are also stripping uh, various other aspects of Afghan um, culture away, um, you know, from public public life and public memory. Then, of course, there is, um, you know, the humanitarian and economic crisis that you talked about. The economic crisis is quite severe. And as I said, it's largely man-made because um, you're effectively looking at a situation where poverty is going to become endemic and universal. 97% of the population is estimated to fall below the poverty line. Um, nearly 9 million Afghans are expected to be facing conditions of famine. Right. These are these are very grave figures, and um, a lot of this has to do with the fact that over the last two decades, the Afghan economy, um, you know, was heavily reliant um, on foreign aid. Uh, nearly seventy percent of the Afghan budget essentially was financed from foreign aid, and uh, you know, the moment the government collapsed, um, sources of external revenue um, essentially dried up, and the economy entered into a free fall and the economic uh, crisis was exacerbated by the fact that, um, you know, sanctions were imposed on the Taliban and um, the central bank's assets were frozen by the United States. Uh, of the nine and a half billion, about seven, seven and a half billion are effectively in the US and that money was frozen, which meant that there was a liquidity crunch. Um, and as a consequence, we've seen the banking system has collapsed. Um, there's large-scale unemployment, joblessness. Uh, there's been a delay in the payment of salaries. Uh, even civil servants, teachers, and medical staff who've been paid salaries, um, they have, um, you know, they've received their salaries late, and very often the salaries have been cut. And this is leading to a lot of economic and social um, distress, because what we are seeing is that as a result of this economic crisis, um, you know, malnutrition has become prevalent. Uh, infant mortality, which had been brought down uh, quite significantly in the last 20 years, has begun to climb up. Uh, maternal mortality rates are going to be impacted as a consequence. Uh, we are seeing households' um, nutritional intake decline. This is also going to impact prospects for education, particularly for girls because Afghanistan, like many countries in um, South Asia, is patriarchal. And when uh, families are going to be faced with the choice of sending boys or girls to school, girls in any case have not been allowed to school um, for the last 180 days. But if they are, um, you know, given the very dire economic situation, what we're likely to see is that families will prioritize sending boys to school because they will 
um, you know, be the future breadwinners ready, so to speak, for the family. Um, we've seen um, an increase in forced marriages. We've seen Afghans taking recourse to, um, you know, selling organs. So there's, there's been a rise in illegal organ trade. But economic collapse will also mean that, you know, more and more people will be pushed into um, the larger um, ecosystem of narcotics, uh, which throws up its own challenges. Uh, poor economic conditions will also be a push factor for pushing many Afghans out of Afghanistan, which means that neighboring countries are likely to deal with refugee flows in, in ever-growing numbers. And uh, Pakistan, um, you know, has claimed that uh, they've been receiving hundreds of thousands of refugees from Afghanistan since the collapse of the regime. And um, Iran too has been seeing a very steady flow of refugees uh, uh, via Nimroz province uh, from Afghanistan into Iran. Um, that is with regard to the economic uh, collapse, right? Uh, economic collapse has also meant that, uh, you know, there's very little uh, funding for uh, the media, right? Uh, the media, in fact, is uh, suffering from a double whammy. Uh, they have little funding, and they have a very, um, <laughs> they have a very, um, you know, fuzzy legal landscape in which they're operating. And as a consequence, what we've seen is that, you know, it's estimated that around forty-five percent of the media houses in Afghanistan have shut down, and from the media houses that have been shut down, 84% of the journalists who've lost jobs are women. And this is, um, this is again very stark because Afghanistan was one of the bright spots in the media landscape in the region. It was ranked better than Pakistan, Iran, and India in terms of media freedom and the kind of work that the Afghan media was doing. Um, and this is really a huge setback. This also means that we'll have um, you know, less and less information coming out um, the Taliban have taken recourse to, you know, arbitrarily detaining journalists, torturing them, um, and, and then releasing them after two weeks, uh, three weeks, or four weeks. And uh, essentially what we've seen is that these voices then tend to go silent for a number of reasons, understandable reasons. Uh, so essentially what we are seeing is that, you know, uh, the media is being stifled. Uh, that is because the aid, of course, uh, don't have money because of the economic crises, but more importantly, they don't have have an enabling environment. And um, we've seen very little action uh, from the international community to essentially take the Taliban to task. And that's largely because there is no there is no will to do that. Um, the third uh, crisis, of course, is that um, you know of human rights. Um, We've seen ever since the Taliban have come to power, um, there have been large-scale violations of human rights. And this is not to say that, you know, uh, uh, during the period of the Republic, there were no uh, human rights violations. Of course, there were large-scale human rights violations during the period of the Republic as well, particularly in the countryside, a lot of which didn't get the kind of attention that they should have got, perhaps. But having said that, uh, what we're seeing today is, you know, a pervasive environment of, of fear, a pervasive environment where these human rights violations are condoned by or overlooked uh, by the ruling authority. In some cases, many would argue they're enabled by the current ruling dispensation in Afghanistan. Um, we've seen uh, whatever institutional mechanisms were put into place to document and um, account for human rights violations, most notably the Afghan Independent Human Rights Commission. Um, they have been dismantled by the Taliban. Um, and the Taliban's actions inspire very little confidence that they're going to do anything at all to address these human rights violations. You know, there've been large-scale killings of the former, revenge killings of the former members of the Afghan National Defense and Security Forces. There've been, um, you know, arbitrary arrests, detention and tortures of people associated with the former government, even in a civilian capacity. Um, they've been, um, you know, arbitrary uh, house arrests and house searches of people uh, belonging to certain ethnic groups, notably people from Panjshir and Kapisa field, they've been unfairly targeted because these are areas where, uh, you know, resistance to the Taliban persists. Um, so 
political resistance has mapped onto existing cleavages. The Taliban have also, for, you know, forcibly thrown out Hazaras from Nili and like would be disp dispossessing them of their land. And all of this is going to have very severe repercussions in the long run. And this is not being taken very seriously by um, the international community. And that's because there is no political will really uh, to deal with this. So, you know, you're essentially looking at crises at multiple levels in the Afghan, um, Afghan setting. And this is going to have um, larger reverberations for the neighborhood because, and, and perhaps most profoundly, reverberations are going to be felt foremost in Pakistan. We're already seeing signs of that in um, terms of not just refugee flows into Pakistan, but also an uptick in activities of non-state actors like the TTP. And the Afghan Taliban has been playing a very proactive role in mediating, um, you know, uh, so-called peace talks between uh, the PTI government in Islamabad and uh, the Tariq Taliban Pakistan. Um, so we are seeing crises essentially at multiple levels in terms of identity, in terms of politics, in terms of security, in terms of human rights um, and humanitarian issues. Uh, also, I mean, there is the issue of, uh, you know, Afghans particularly women, not being allowed access to education. And the question is that even if the Taliban make good on their promise of opening schools for girls after Nauru's, uh, Nauru's is the uh, new year, which they've outlawed, by the way, um, the question is, um, you know, given the very dire economic situation that Afghanistan is in at the moment, how many families would be able to send their girls to school? Um, Second, even if they get their girls to school, there is a question of a, um, you know, what would be taught in these schools? What would the curriculum be like? Um, many fear the curriculum uh, that was devised over the last 20 years is likely to be gutted under this theocratic um, regime that is in, in power. Um, and the second question is that how will uh, the Taliban implement their policy of only have allowing females to teach uh, girls in um, uh, grades above grade five. Grade five or six is their regulation. Uh, because Afghanistan has always struggled to find women teachers, particularly in the countryside for higher grades. Um, and if they don't find adequate number of teachers, um, how, will they, how will they implement their education program? So how will they still, even if in, in, in uh, theory they allow women to access schools, how will they be able to implement that? So there are multiple challenges that we are, we are looking at um, in the Afghan setting at the moment. Thank you, Professor. And it's indeed a heartbreaking situation in Afghanistan. I would like to ask you something else that, what do you think is the possible future of Afghanistan now that with the invasion of Ukraine, the four decade story of Afghanistan has been almost forgotten and the severity of the situation is almost neglected. Um, well, that's a very loaded question, but I'm glad that you brought uh, you know, Ukraine um, into the picture. And you know, the response of the international community to Ukraine um, throws two very important facts into stark uh, public life. One, that public memory is short. And two, um, you know, how the unfolding crises in Ukraine has um, generated a lot of empathy. Um, and you contrast that with what happened in Afghanistan, um, you know, seven months back. Um, there's a stark difference in the way uh, the world has responded and the world has opened their doors to the Ukrainians. Uh, ideally, that's how it should be for most countries. But uh, clearly, you know, our humanitarian responses uh, are graded. Um, we don't we don't have uh, the same yardstick for you know humanitarian crises unfolding around the world. Uh, and Afghanistan is just one example um, that's been talked about and that too because America was there for two decades. You've had a very great humanitarian situation prevailing in Yemen for so many years, Somalia for so many years. Um, but clearly, you know, uh, they've not caught the attention that um, that they deserve. Ethiopia is something you'll be take, taking up later as well. 
um, you know, there's, there's a stark difference in the way the world has responded to a humanitarian crisis in the backyard of Europe and humanitarian crises unfolding in the global south. That is what, um, and that's the first thing that, um, uh, you know, this, this throws up. In terms of what um, this beholds for the future of Afghanistan, um, I think Afghanistan is looking at a fairly um, unstable and uncertain future. Um, largely because, you know, um, the government itself um, in power has a very narrow uh, social and political base, and they might be able to sustain this power for a few years um, through deployment of brute force. Uh, but I doubt that they'll ever be able to attain legitimacy and secure a sustainable peace in Afghanistan, which is very important because Afghanistan has seen more than four decades of violence. Sustainable peace would entail not just an absence of violence, uh, but it would entail um, building peace from below, bringing communities torn apart by war uh, for decades um, by working with them. And that is something which is um, totally uh, and absolutely lacking. Um, the future is also uncertain because um, you know there is no plan at the moment, even with the international community on how to get the Afghan economy up and running. Um, what the international community, particularly the EU, has been doing is that, you know, they've been pumping, pumping aid um, of about 400 million euros to address the unfolding economic crisis. The World Food Programme is giving food aid. I mean, all of these are steps which are okay uh, in the short term to address um, issues of severe food insecurity, um, and grief poverty that the Afghans are uh, essentially staring at. But in the long run, these are not measures that can help sustain and kickstart the Afghan economy. For that, you need liquidity. And um, to address the question of, you know, having uh, liquidity in the Afghan economy, to have money flowing into the Afghan economy again, uh, requires not just an economic, but a political uh, response as well. And that is totally missing at the moment. Um, third, you know, um, many people believe that uh, now that spring is, is pretty much there, we're likely to see an uptick in incidences of violence uh, with, you know, for certain forces regrouping in certain parts of the country and targeting the Taliban. Uh, how successful they might be is, is anybody's guess. Um, I feel that they may not, may not be able to mount any large-scale offensive at the moment, and that is because the Taliban have the support of most regional countries, uh, but they will be enough to create trouble and to ensure that uncertainty and violence uh, persists. So I think unless and until, um, you know, a political solution is found to the crisis in Afghanistan, we're going to see, um, you know, Afghanistan essentially limping from one crisis to the next, lurching from one crisis to the next. Um, so effectively, in one, one sentence, if I was to say uh, how, uh, you know, the response has been to the unfolding Afghan crisis, it's essentially like sticking a Band-Aid on, you know, a gaping wound. And that's really not going to, um, not going to address the crisis. It won't heal the wound um, that is there in Afghanistan. Thank you, Professor. Now we'll open the floor for the other interns to speak about uh, the other nations and we'll end the session with some questions. So now I would like to ask Aryan to talk further about the case of Yemen. Uh, Aryan, you can take over. Thank you, Grishma. Uh, yeah, so I will be giving a brief summary introduction uh, on the Yemen crisis. Uh, the Yemen crisis essentially started in 2011 uh, when there was a failed transition of power between the then authoritarian president Ali Abdullah Saleh uh, to his deputy Abdurraba Mansur Hadi. Uh, the transition of power failed because there were loyalties that were too strong on both sides, the deputy president as well as the president. And uh, the deputy president was not able to consolidate power after the so-called transition. President Hadi failed to lead a strong and stable government, and hence Yemen was plagued with unemployment, food insecurity, corruption, and an already flailing economy. 
the Ansar Allah, which is the official name for the Houthis, took advantage of this political instability and championed their Shia minorities cause. They wrestled control of the northern heartland of Sana in early 2014, which was when uh, the initial signs of a, uh, of a approaching civil war were seen. By early 2015, the rebels had taken over the capital of Yemen, which is Sana, and the country had officially descended into civil war. Uh, again, a brief history of why this conflict took place is, uh, it is important to know that, you know, there are two main sects in uh, the Islamic world, that is the Shias and the Sunnis. Countries like Saudi Arabia, the UAE, Bahrain, uh, the majority of the countries in the Arabian Gulf are mostly Sunni Muslims. Uh, the major Shia sect uh, uh, nationally is Iran. Iran has a large Shia population and is known to use that population and its reach to uh, finance activities outside their own borders. And a prime example of this financing and influencing is Yemen. When in 2015, the Houthis took control of Sana'a, it, uh, it was a well-known fact and it was also later documented uh, and proved by Saudi Arabia that uh, most of the funding for this revolution and for the start of the civil wars was provided by Iran to champion the Shia cause in Yemen. Uh, another thing that I, and this is a very personal opinion I talk about here is that the, the infighting that we see or we saw start in 2015 in Yemen, was not really a Shia versus Sunni conflict uh, internally. While on a larger scale throughout the Middle East, it is mostly a Sunni versus Shia conflict. Uh, it, uh, for Yemen particularly in their domestic politics, it was more about uh, other countries' interference into the conflict. Uh, because Yemen today has become a battleground for Saudi and Iran. Uh, so you have Iran continuously financing, backing, providing weapons and military support to the Houthis, as well as other uh, Shia militant groups. And you have the Saudi-led coalition that includes Saudi Arabia, UAE and uh, Bahrain and countries and so on that have been uh, championing the cause for the UN recognized government of President Hadi. Uh, it is also important to note that uh, as of today, the main fighting coalition on the Saudis uh, side, the Sunni side, is mostly Saudi Arabia. Countries like Bahrain and UAE have pulled out uh, over 90% of their troops after uh, there was uh, a brutal terrorist strike in 2018, which killed, I believe, 22 Emirati troops. So it has now purely become a Saudi versus Iran conflict in Yemen. This conflict uh, already exasperated a flailing economy, as I said before. Uh, so Yemen has had its problems uh, with a stable economy since 2001 and 2002, when they began their initial uh, infighting between tribes in the south and the southwest. So the problem with Yemen primarily lies in the fact that there are just too many factions trying to pull the country apart. You have the Houthis that uh, want to champion the Shia cause. You have the Southern uh, separatist militants. You have the Eastern separatist militants. You have Southern Western tribes, uh, South, sorry, Southwestern tribes that also want a separate uh, autonomous territory. There is just so many tribes and ethnicities and religions or, or religious sects fighting for place that many say conflict was inevitable. And the human cost of this conflict has obviously been devastating. Uh, the UN deemed the effects of this war as a shocking cost of humanity. And uh, uh, the UN Secretary General has often uh, quoted, uh, or has often stated that he has never seen devastation of this kind or, of, or a humanitarian crisis of this kind over such a protracted period uh, in his career. So in as of December 2020, because it was difficult to uh, get data for 2021, uh, because a lot of agencies have not been regularly collecting data. So as of December 2020, there have been over 233,000 deaths from the war, uh, which includes which includes 131,000 deaths from indirect causes such as lack of food and health services. Uh, it is estimated that close to 10,000 children have also perished in the conflict. Uh, again, as uh, due to direct fighting uh, weapons or indirect causes such as lack of food and health services. Uh, UN experts believe that all factions have committed war crimes. The Saudis have often been blamed 
for uh, conducting unauthorized airstrikes over uh, dubious targets. So uh, there is this understanding in the Saudi military forces, especially that act in Yemen, that uh, there is not a very long chain of command to approve an airstrike. It's a very short chain of command. And this short chain of command has led to a lot of uh, you know, mistakes by the military forces where they have bombed institutions or uh, buildings that were really just uh, civilian institutions. Uh, the Houthis themselves have been accused of great war, uh, crimes, uh, war crimes against Sunnis living under uh, their protectorates. Uh, so right as of today, the Houthis control mostly the Northwestern and the Western areas of Yemen, uh, which while having a concentration of Shia tribes still have a significant Sunni population. This population is often uh, known to be persecuted by the Houthis. And uh, again, as I said, the humanitarian cost of this conflict is, is, is shocking solely because as I said before, there are 131,000 deaths just from indirect causes. You know, these are not people who died from gunshot wounds or, or an airstrike or, or a, 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 an explosion, but just because they did not have access to food, they starved to death, or, you know, they were not able to heal a cut and they, they got infected. And so this indirect cost of this conflict is, is really heart-wrenching. Uh, over 4 million people have been displaced and over 71% of the population is in some form uh, or needs some form of aid to survive. This number should, I honestly believe, should tell you everything you need to know about the conflict. You have 71% of the population uh, relying on aid. That is, that is absolutely no domestic production of food, domestic production of medicine, and aid corridors have often been, uh, you know, promised but never materialized. To, uh, as per uh, the UN, uh, as per the World Food Bank, 2.3 million children under the age of five are acutely malnourished, including 400,000 children who are at a risk of immediate and close death if not treated. The COVID pandemic uh, came and has stayed in the country with no real acknowledgement from either the Houthis or the uh, present Hadi-backed government, as medical facilities uh, are too overwhelmed with uh, war-related wounds to even have any sort of you know, testing and quarantining facilities to be put up. Uh, the government has only confirmed about 9,000 cases and about 1,800 deaths, but these are grossly underestimated as there is no uh, adequate testing and uh, quarantining measures in place. Uh, as I said before, it's it's mostly a power struggle between you know Shia-ruled Iran and Sunni-ruled Saudi Arabia that has just descended onto an external ground that has become Yemen. Uh, another thing that is worth noting is Yemen is very strategically placed as well. It links the Red Sea with the Gulf of Aden. Uh, the Red Sea, especially, is is a very big uh, access point for Saudi Arabia into the global uh, marine trade, and so. Uh, uh, a lot of fighting, uh, especially a lot of attacks by the Saudi coalition against the Houthis are focused on trying to gain control of the Western ports. Yemen was already one of the poorest nations in the Middle East. Uh, the civil war has just made its economic woes worse. Uh, within the first year of the war, exports dropped 20% and the value of the real has crashed and plummeted. Uh, another major issue with the economic system is that there are multiple banking systems that are currently being run parallelly. So in 2019, the President Hadi-led government issued new notes. These notes were printed in the uh, erstwhile temporary capital of Aden, which is uh, the, the government controlled. The Houthis seeing this as, you know, a violation of uh, various uh, understandings before, I would say they weren't exactly treaties, they were other understandings they have banned the new government notes in their protectorates, in the areas surrounding the capital, Sana'a, and the Northwestern uh, districts as well. This has led to multiple banking systems being involved in the country. And I think it must be a very unique case where you see a currency exchange rate within Yemen for the same currency. So the newer notes within Yemen have lesser value compared to older notes, whereas it's the same currency issued by the federal bank. Uh, or rather the government controlled federal bank. But this multiple banking system uh, has led to uh, hyperinflation in the country and it, it um, 
you know, citizens of Yemen are left with basically no uh, economic reserves. Uh, cooking gas has become increasingly expensive. Again, inflation has greatly contributed, contributed to it. And imports are, uh, again, imports are just not coming into the country because of an um, UN embargo, as well as the Saudi coalition has been blamed for bombing certain uh, tankers. Uh, in terms of how much aid has been provided to these countries and you know what sort of help has come into Yemen, Saudi Arabia is the world's largest donor to Yemen. It has pledged over $18 billion over the past six years and has almost dispensed $12 billion of that aid. Um, the United States has provided close to $4 billion in aid, uh, the UK $1 billion, pounds, and the UAE has provided over $6 billion in aid as well. Uh, I think it's really important to understand and, uh, you know, as we're all here speaking about humanitarian crises, we, we may all relate uh, with the countries we're talking about, that when humanitarian aid is pledged or rather even sent, it is very difficult to get it to the people on the ground. Uh, again, I'm going to take a very contemporary example, a present example of the Ukraine. So, you know, there, there, there are multiple aid convoys that, that are trying to go to the eastern cities in Ukraine because they are the most besieged cities right now by Russian forces. But it is just so, you know, money from across the world has been poured into these aid convoys. There are 20, 20, 20 long trucks uh, that are carrying food into these cities. But these trucks are not able to reach these cities. And it's the same thing with Yemen. You have these shiploads of grains and salt and sugar and stuff uh, trying to make it into the ports, but it's either sometimes the Houthis deny them permission or the Saudi coalition denies them permission or at times the port, you know, there is infighting going on at the port and these tankers are just not able to anchor there. And so, uh, as I said before, with a, with a population that is 71% reliant on some form of aid, uh, we are seeing a, a crisis that uh, I believe we have not seen before uh, with a population that is severely malnourished and at the risk of having, uh, you know, a, a case of maybe mass deaths because of just famine. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Aryan. That was indeed some really resourceful insights about how horrifying the incidents are in Yemen. Now I would like Akhilesh to take over and talk about Ethiopia. Akhilesh, you can take over. Uh, well, thank you, Krishna. Uh, so firstly, I would like to thank uh, Professor Raghav Sharma for gracing our podcast with his presence and providing some really valuable insights uh, on the Afghanistan humanitarian crisis and uh, Arjen as well for providing a valuable synopsis of the crisis in Yemen. So I'll be talking about the humanitarian crisis currently ongoing in Ethiopia. And what I'll do is, uh, I'll first talk about what is going on there, that is the present state of the humanitarian crisis. And then I'll go on to talk about some of the underlying and fundamental causes for this crisis to transpire as it is today. And Ethiopia, in many ways, is a very unique example, because unlike Af Yemen and Afghanistan, whom we have had a discussion on today, uh, there is less international uh, attention on Ethiopia in the sense that there are less international actors in the form of countries such as the US, or in, as we saw in the case of Yemen, Saudi Arabia, Iran, in a similar fashion, involved in a way in Ethiopia, because the nature of the conflict in Ethiopia is fundamentally domestic. And as uh, Professor Raghav quite rightly pointed out, it's, it's a shame that countries in the global south who are facing humanitarian crisis are not given sufficient attention, while countries in the global north, such as uh, Ukraine, are giving a lot of attention. And Ethiopia is would be a brilliant example of that, because it's severe humanitarian crisis has received very little attention. So to provide some description of what is going on there, uh, currently there are about 7 million people throughout the country who are suffering from acute food shortages. And the infighting between the Ethiopian government and the Tigray People's Liberation Front, or in short, the TPLF, have left those, uh, particularly in the northern region of the country, such as Tigray, Amhara, and Afar, in dire need of humanitarian assistance. And the United Nations estimates that despite the $40 million total injection of new resources to Ethiopia, the country still faces a significant funding gap of around $1.3 billion. And uh, official report by the World Food Program this month said that it would be distributing its last supplies of cereals, pulses, and oil next week to Tigray, where more than 5 million, 5 million people are estimated to be in need of dire food assistance. 
and uh, Michael Dunford, who is the World Food Program's Regional Director for East Africa, in a damning statement, he said that, and I quote, we are not having to choose between who goes hungry to prevent another from starving, end quote. And Ethiopia, as, uh, as Secretary General Antonio Guterres uh, recently reiterated earlier this year, has said that it is facing an immense humanitarian crisis amid uh, a very severe civil war and famine. And the United Nations figures also estimates that the conflict has driven around 400,000 people into famine-like conditions, with up to 7 million people in need of food assistance in regions such as Tigray, Amhara, and Afar. So this brief picture gives you an idea of the kind of humanitarian crisis that this country is facing. And it's again, as I said, it's a shame that it's not receiving uh, sufficient international attention. So now to move on to what are the fundamental reasons for the current conflict? So I'll be briefly discussing on the two major aspects which I feel uh, succinctly explain what is going on today. And these two include the historic centrality of Tigray in Ethiopian politics. And that concludes the first reason. And the second fundamental reason includes the monopolization of power by Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed. So before we understand the conflict, it is important to understand that the region of Tigray, which is in the northern region of Ethiopia, is extremely central to the current conflict. And it is also central to the history of Ethiopian politics in general. And the region of Tigray has had a history of marginalization since the 18th century. And that is what fundamentally led to the formation of the Tigray People's Liberation Front, or in short, the TPLF, in the 1970s, which was a rebel group when it was formed and eventually turned into a political party when Ethiopia became a multi-party democracy uh, after the revolution in 1991. And uh, the Ethiopian democracy in 1991 was founded on the principles of ethno-linguistic federalization, and which is a very unique model which is followed in Ethiopia. So it is important to understand that Ethiopia is an extremely ethnically diverse country, and there are over 100 officially recorded ethnic groups in Ethiopia. Although there are more than 100 uh, ethnic groups in Ethiopia with each of these groups speaking their own unique language, there are fundamentally three main ethnic groups which we need to discuss today. And these include the Oromos, the Amhalas, and of course the Tigrayans. And the Tigrayans constitute a very small percentage of this population. They constitute only 5% of the total population of uh, Ethiopia, but they have a significant role and have played a significant uh, impact on how Ethiopian politics has played out. And uh, the Oromos and Amhalas are the, are the majority in Ethiopia, with Oromos being 35% uh, and Amhalas being another 30%. And as I said, uh, since democracy was instituted in 1991, we have had uh, Ethiopian prime ministers who are Tigrayans, and it is Tigrayans and the formation of the uh, of the of the part of the group, rather the EPRDF, the Ethiopian People's Revolutionary Democratic Front, which is led by the TPLF, which has had a huge say in how politics has uh, gone about. So to talk about more recent events uh, of how this conflict shaped out, this conflict first started in November of uh, 2020. And the sec that come that and the with that I come to my second cause, that is, uh, it was fundamentally fomented because of the monopolization of power by Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed. Uh, and of course, I'm sure that many of you would have heard about him uh, since he received the Nobel Peace Prize in 2019 due to his efforts to solve uh, really high tensions with the neighboring Eritrea. But uh, we should look at the Ethiopian conflict in, in the sense that it is, uh, it is fundamentally a difference in vision for what Ethiopia should look like. And uh, Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed uh, talks about many of his policies seem to make calls for a unitary state with centralized power. But as I mentioned earlier, Ethiopian democracy was founded on the principle of a federal state with decentralized power. And since Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed came to power in, in 2018, uh, under the EPRDF, which is the dominant uh, group, uh, dominant political alliance in Ethiopia, in 2018, uh, rather in 2019, he went on to uh, dissolve the group and uh, he dissolved the TPLF along with it. And TPLF, due to the dissolvement, was uh, required to retreat in its uh, home region of Tigray. And he went on to form his own political party. And this in essence, started the, started fomenting the conflict and eventually led to a full breakout of civil war in 2020. And many of his policies that he took during this period uh, make calls for or represent an attempt to uh, monopolize power, that is, ensure that 
the structure of the Ethiopian political system is changed from a federal structure, which is which was what was followed since 1990, into a unitary state model wherein the prime minister holds most of the cards uh, on issues of economic and political importance. And this is, uh, to my mind, what is at the very heart of the conflict. And uh, the conflict, of course, started in 2020 with uh, uh, Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed sending troops to. Uh, to the Tigray region to take over the Tigray region because uh, just prior to that, in September of 2020, uh, when when uh, Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed uh, didn't allow elections to happen, citing the COVID-19 pandemic and the associated restrictions, uh, Tigray defied this and went ahead with its with its ele with uh, elections in its region itself. And this he said is not acceptable because uh, we have to have a unitary state and we need to have elections when the Prime Minister says so. But the, the Tigrayans obviously pointed out that we are extremely federal and uh, uh, decentralized state and we have all the right to do hold elections uh, when we please to do. And uh, this, uh, in essence, is what is going on in Ethiopia. And uh, of course, there's a long history of how the Tigrayans are marginalized. But this, to my sense, is what is at the heart of the conflict. That is, uh, it is a tale of two political theories of centralization and decentralization, coupled with a very ethnically factionalized country. And this uh, is how is what is central to understand when it comes to the Ethiopian humanitarian crisis today. So yeah. Thank you, Akhilesh. That was indeed very important to know about the very neglected crisis of Ethiopia. Now I would like to open the floor for questions. If any of our interns would uh, would want to ask questions to Professor Rakhav, please they can go ahead. Uh, well, Professor Raghav, I have a question uh, on the Afghanistan crisis. And uh, of course, you said that the international community has a huge role to play in the coming, in deciding the coming future of Afghanistan. But when it comes to Afghanistan, the fundamental reason or the fundamental concern of many of the international, uh, in the international community and countries outside in general is that uh, the Afghan government, which is run by Taliban, is incapable or incompetent to handle the resources given to them. And that is why we have seen uh, in December uh, of last year that many of them intensified sanctions in Afghanistan and this again further crippled their economy. So how do you think that we should achieve a balance between providing aid for Afghanistan and, uh, the, and the incompetence of the Taliban, which is brought with corruption? Well, um, you know, this is again not, not an easy question to answer. But um, corruption was corruption was there even during the uh, period of the republic. Corruption was endemic in the period of the republic, and was one of the factors that actually hollowed out the system uh, and allowed it to collapse so rapidly um, that it took everybody uh, really by surprise. And um, now, while the so-called international community is crying foul over the Taliban's inability to handle aid and to, uh, you know, distribute aid in a transparent and fair manner. And there's been very credible accusations of the Taliban monopolizing aid and channelizing aid to its own supporters. Uh, but the po point is that these were fears that had been expressed by members of the Afghan civil society and even members of the uh, political elite in Kabul while the so-called peace negotiations were going on in Doha. Uh, they were warned ample number of times. These are some amongst the many other challenges that they will face uh, in dealing with the Taliban. Uh, but these concerns were disregarded for uh, political expediency by the United States when uh, they essentially cut a deal with the Taliban, which was nothing but a face-saving exit strategy for the United States, um, which also didn't pan out the way the elites in Washington would have wanted it to pan out. Um, so it's not as if, you know, the international community was not in the know-how that they will be facing, um, uh, you know, challenges of such a nature uh, should it, such a situation of the kind that we are seeing today should come to pass. Um, so, A, I mean, um, you know, uh, they also need to uh, take a fair share of the blame, as it were. Um, B, I think, um, you know, the international community will have to find ways um, to work with the Taliban and perhaps exert greater pressure on them to allow 
um, organizations outside um, the Taliban um, to distribute and channelize channelize humanitarian aid in an effective and transparent manner and to allow organizations access to provinces like Panshir um, and Kapisa where um, you know the Taliban have been accused of carrying out massive war crimes and have been accused of depriving the population of food aid uh, to provinces like Bamiyan where there have been um, accusations of the Taliban siphoning of aid. Um, so I think uh, they need to work to put into place a system uh, which is transparent. They need to uh, exert greater pressure on the Taliban to allow access to provinces, um, you know, where the Taliban have been really calling the shots in how aid is distributed. Um, there will have to be a quid pro quid pro quo on this, um, because clearly, um, you know, the international community, led by the United States, is having a hard time um, accepting the fact that. You know, they've effectively suffered a strategic defeat at the hands of the Taliban 20 years after they ousted them. A lot of it is their own doing. Um, now, how this is secured, uh, you know, is very difficult. It's, it's something which is very difficult to pinpoint really with, with accuracy, um, given the fact that many civil society organizations on the ground that had been working in the humanitarian sector, uh, you know, uh, have collapsed or, or have shrunk. Their number has shrunk dramatically, uh, largely because the Taliban A have been persecuting people um, on arbitrary grounds and B, the economic situation has been a huge push factor for many people who were leading these efforts on the ground uh, to, to have been pushed out of the country. Uh, so I think the best bet is going to be uh, at the moment to rely on the network of, um, you know, uh, big NGOs that already have a presence like uh, the World Food Program, the Red Cross, um, uh, you know, they essentially will have to work with the existing set of local partners um, to distribute humanitarian aid and greater political pressure will have to be, um, brought, uh, you know, uh, brought to bear on the Taliban to allow distribution of aid in an effective and transparent manner. Uh, but so far, uh, you know, the international community has um, fallen short of expectations on this. Uh, and what is most striking for me in this whole unfolding humanitarian um, catastrophe that is taking place that many countries that enabled the Taliban, uh, the United States, of course, being the leading, uh, leading one, um, by signing the Doha deal, which effectively had sounded the death knell for the Republic. Uh, but even countries like China, and uh, Pakistan and Iran, um, you know, and Russia, which had quoted the Taliban and tried to curry favor with them, um, you know, they are really not at the forefront of addressing this humanitarian crisis. It is the other countries like the Europe, and it's countries which are part of the European bloc that, you know, have been more vocal, relatively speaking, in trying to um, address some aspects of the humanitarian challenge. And the EU also, I mean, let's face it, has its own vested interest in addressing the crisis, which is that they don't want the flow of refugees. Um, it's as uh, plain and simple as that. And you can pick up the statement of EU envoys that was issued, I think, on the 31st of August in response to the unfolding situation in Afghanistan. And the one theme that runs through that statement is of refugees, refugees, and refugees. They don't want refugee flows from Afghanistan. Uh, that has been one major reason why they've been, uh, you know, at the forefront of trying to address um, the crisis that is there. Uh, but the options are frankly um, somewhat limited because both politically and militarily, uh, you know, the Western-led alliance has been on the back foot. So it's going to be a challenging task. Uh, well, thank you for that comprehensive answer, Professor. Uh, I also had another question. So with respect to the economic aspect of governance, I had a question on how the future economic policy of, of Taliban should look like. And to provide some context, uh, as you said, over 80% of uh, the Afghan economy is currently run on foreign aid. However, uh, there is a very thriving and abundant poppy illegal trade business that is going on in Afghanistan. And that has brought in a lot of revenue for the country. And the Taliban, of course, is, uh, is, is has a strict policy against opium. And it said that opium is quote unquote a grave, a grave crime to Islam. 
and uh, when they came back to power taliban spokespersons they said that they would when when they come in when they have form a central government they will notice a ban on the trade of poppy and illegal uh, illegal drugs and uh, they have also asked for other countries to provide to increase the foreign aid in when they do this when they initiate this ban so what do you think should be uh, the taliban's approach when it comes to uh, the, the poppy industry do you think this is the right approach to initiate bans and uh, hope for more foreign aid because many of the countries have been really muted on this issue when it comes to poppy trade so what do you think should be uh, the economic policy on this aspect i don't think the taliban is really serious about uh, you know banning banning poppy cultivation remember the first time the taliban were in power you know they issued an edict um, banning opium cultivation um but actually the reason behind that ban um, you know was the fact that there was a glut of opium in the market which had led to you know a tumbling of opium prices in the international market and to eff- effectively correct that imbalance the taliban uh, very cleverly came up with an edict outlawing uh, opium cultivation in afghanistan and uh, you know dressed it up uh, under the veil of uh, islam uh, whereas it really had nothing to do with uh, you know their uh, so called devotion uh, to the religion of islam it really was uh, dictated by um, the economic realities on the ground which is that they were not making enough money because there was a glut of opium in the market uh similarly i think the state the statement that they issued that you know will outlaw opium and it's um uh, something that contravenes uh, the religion of islam i think is more for optics and it's more for um uh, rhetorical purposes than uh, anything substantive on the ground uh because there's been very little on the ground to suggest that uh, there's anything very much that the taliban have been able to do to outlaw opium cultivation and this is an ironical statement coming from a group which has sustained itself for over two decades on you know money um generated from narco trafficking and narco trafficking uh, and opium cultivation is something um whose links cut across political uh and geographical uh, borders in this region um so very often you you would have found uh, people uh, on the taliban side and on the other side that the taliban were fighting uh, doing good business you know um uh, based on opium cultivation so i don't think that their um, so called ban um really means anything substantive on the ground also given the very dire economic situation that afghans find themselves in you know with poverty becoming endemic and universal over 700000 afghans being displaced internally because of conflict uh, along with a host of other issues means that you know economic avenues um or productive economic avenues uh, for afghans um are shrinking by the day even the ones who who had jobs with the government you know the income is not going to be enough to sustain um, families and afghans have large families uh, and this is um, by most accounts going to push people into essentially uh, activities like illegal organ trade narco trafficking or essentially they'll be pushed out um, uh, you know to to neighboring countries uh, so there is very little that the taliban uh, you know would be able to do uh to curtail the ban because eventually at some stage if the economic crisis continues to continues to aggravate um they will face uh, an implosion from within and that is certainly not something that they want to uh, they want to do uh, not something they want to deal with uh more than that i don't think the taliban at the moment also have the economic vision to resuscitate afghanistan's economy because most look at most of the appointments that they've made uh, the current head of the afghan central bank um, you know is on a global terror list as is of course most of their cabinet uh, but even otherwise most people heading most economic institution in uh, institutions in afghanistan uh, they are effectively mullahs with um, you know training in in their very narrow interpretation of religion they don't have any economic expertise and this uh, you know inspires very little confidence in um, the kind of vision that that, that the taliban have for the economic uh, uh, future of afghanistan 
most of the educated Afghans one talks to, um, you know, they despise the fact that they have to serve under um, somebody who's been trained in a madarsa, uh, most likely in Pakistan, um, and has no uh, has nothing to do with the art of governance or with the art of um, you know crafting policy in whether it's in the economic realm or it's in the social uh, social realm or the cultural realm, um, <clears throat> which has led many uh, educated Afghans to flee the country or they're looking at prospects to, uh, to, to flee the country if they've not already left. So what you're also seeing is a brain drain uh, from the country. Um, so, you know, this inspires, I mean, basically this inspires very little confidence that uh, the Taliban will be able to have the economy up and running and they're, that they're really serious about uh, implementing this so-called opium ban. ban. Uh, their past actions betray uh, their words. And um, I mean, even today, a large amount of uh, money that they've generated has been from narco-trafficking. So I don't see any good reason as to why they'll make good on this, on this ban, apart from you know, uh, trying to score a few brownie points with the international community and to signal to them that their intent that they really want to, uh, you know, um, reform. They're in a different avatar, and uh, you know they should really be considered for recognition. So I, I don't think it's got anything more to, more um, to do than mere optics and rhetoric. Uh, professor, I also have a question. Uh, so in the introduction, I heard Grishma mentioning that uh, you have worked as a humanitarian worker in Afghanistan. So could you elaborate on how your experience was at that time or what the situation was like at that point of time? So um, I had gone to Afghanistan initially in 2007 as, um, as an uh, intern with a local NGO, um, which I will not name because the NGO is still active and I don't want to put my colleagues or friends over there in danger. Um, and I worked essentially on a children's rehabilitation project in Bamiyan province. Uh, and I was made a job offer um, after my internship was coming, once my internship was coming to an end effectively. And um, I couldn't take up the offer at that time because um, I also got an offer to uh, you know, study in Budapest on a scholarship. Uh, but I did manage to come back after completing my master's and I joined the same organization. I was based in Kabul, um, but I managed to travel across across the length and breadth of the country, uh, effectively. And uh, this was one of the most educative experiences for me, both in 2007 and 2010. Um, you know, I would say I instantly, um, uh, you know, took to the country and to the people. Uh, it's a country where people are very warm, very hospitable. Um, and my work essentially um, brought me into contact with, uh, with people from very different walks of life. It gave me insights into everyday lived experiences of the Afghans. And since I was working with a local NGO um, and not with an international NGO, this was a deliberate decision because international NGOs by then had put into place a number of security protocols which actually restricted your movement very severely. Um, and, you know, international NGOs were also becoming infamous for propagating the expat bubble uh, with, you know, 70 to 80% of their budget essentially going to meet uh, fairly obnoxious salaries that many expats were drawing. I was working on a very small salary, but it gave me, uh, it gave me an unparalleled experience um, into the Afghan way of life because um, we actually lived with uh, local rural communities. We mingled with the Afghans. Um, you know, every day. Um, so I traveled not just to big cities, but to remote uh, remote areas of the country as well. Um, so places like Behsud, which are far tucked away, far up in the mountains in, in, in Bamiyan to Kandahar to, you know, Jauzjan in the West. Um, so it, it gave me a flavor of uh, what Afghanistan is like. And in my second stint, which was in 2010, I worked on not just a children's rehabilitation project, but also worked in girls' education and uh, access to basic, basic health services in the eastern part of the country, in Ningarhar and Lagman, which abut Pakistan, were two provinces that were um, you know, key areas where our projects were initiated. 
And um, that was, again, a wonderful way to gain insights into how, uh, you know, NGO work and policy work entailed um, negotiating with the cultural tapestry of the country. Um, uh, so it involved, amongst other things, you know, uh, working with the local uh, religious leadership, the mullahs, um, for a program which was, uh, it was a family planning program, which we had adapted to the cultural context and we called it child spacing to make it more acceptable culturally and religiously. And it allowed us an opportunity to work with religious figures, uh, something which, you know, I had never imagined I would be I would find myself doing uh, because, uh, you know, religion and policy usually as an outsider were two things that, you know, one never saw as really being uh, compatible of sort of going along in, in the same boat. Um, so it gave me very, um, very unusual insights into um, everyday lived experiences of how, uh, you know, um, the social and political and cultural life of Afghans is um, how policy interacts with these social and cultural and political frames, uh, how one is to negotiate with this. It allowed me to also form, uh, you know, more or less, I would say, everlasting bonds uh, of friendship. Um, it gave me a totally new perspective and it became seminal for me to also work towards eventually my PhD, which I was not planning to do at that point in time. Um, uh, so, it was a great learning experience. I, I would say I've perhaps learned more from my work on the field in Afghanistan than I did um, essentially for, you know, from uh, my degree work, which was important in its own right. But I think nothing can really substitute um, in terms of what you pick up in the field. And um, you meet people, um, particularly in the countryside, um, you know, who are essentially an encyclopedia in themselves. They may not have been to a formal college, um, but I think the knowledge that they have and, and uh, the humility that they uh, bring with it uh, is truly amazing. It opens up a new world. It opens up new perspectives of how you look at things. Um, and this for me was, was the biggest lesson. Thank you, Professor, for such vivid description of your experience in Afghanistan. And after listening to Professor and my fellow research interns, we all agree that every person and every child stuck in between the clash of power will be scarred forever. They may or may not be physically injured. They might not lose blood. But witnessing the horrifying sights of losing family members or just looking at another human being bleed to death can have severe psychological impacts. We really hope and believe that the international community will come together to help mitigate the humanitarian crisis in any region beyond any restrictions or any other factor. We collectively at the center pray for these affected communities and wish that they receive faster relief. Thank you, Professor, for gracing our podcast with your expertise and it was great learning from you. I also thank my fellow interns for giving such elaborate research inputs about each and every country that they have taken. Again, thank you. And I hope that all of, you, all of us stay safe and stay happy. Well, thank you for having me. And it was, it was a pleasure listening to the interns weigh in on the crisis in Ethiopia and Yemen. So uh, thank you for that.